everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the Pixis Podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Sadie Rodriguez, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. My name is Neha Perky, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Stanford Children's. Today, Neha and I have the opportunity to speak with Lindsay Justice. She is a CICU APP program lead at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and treasurer of PCICS. We'll also be speaking with my colleague and friend, Dr. Lillian Sue, a clinical associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Cardiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine and an attending physician in the CICU at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. She's also on the board of PICSIS and serves as co-chair of the Education Committee. We are so excited to speak with Lillian and Lindsay about the panel they moderated at the PICSIS 2020 virtual meeting titled, The CICU is Not Run by Robots, Understanding Our Humanness. And just to recap for all of our listeners, during that panel, we heard from Andrea Cooks, a human factors engineer at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, about the cognitive and physical demands of working in the CICU, as well as from Christine Riley, a nurse practitioner at Children's National, about the impact of sleep disruption on CICU providers. We also heard from Dr. Donna Ballard, an associate professor of organizational communication and technology at UT Austin, about the perception of time and Dr. Mary Waller, a professor of management and medical education at Texas Christian University, spoke about optimizing team functioning during moments of VUCA, or volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So we were lucky to hear from a really diverse group of speakers with different perspectives on the work we all do in the CICU. So thank you so much, Lindsay, and thank you, Lillian, for joining us today. Um, The conference was really fascinating and had a lot of good sessions, and I feel like this session about the ICU not being run by robots is a little different than previous years. So we wanted to just start off and ask you guys how you came up with this concept and how did you pick your speakers? Hey, Sadie and Neha, thank you guys so much for inviting both of us to talk about this panel. Lindsay, maybe I'll take that question first and then you can chime in with whatever I forgot. So I think I was actually the one that might've pitched this because Lindsay, I know, was the program chair for the whole program and so was quite busy organizing all of us on the program committee to kind of pitch ideas of what we thought would be really interesting for this year. And obviously, this process occurred before COVID, but this kind of obsession of mine of human versus robots, especially living here in Silicon Valley, I think is an idea that I've kind of perseverated over the past few years. And so the idea really comes from thinking about how robots and technology, I believe, just like many other people, are really going to take over a lot of work of all of us in the next 10 to 20 years. And even thinking about our jobs in cardiac intensive care, every time I walk into the unit, I'm always thinking about what are the tasks that can really actually be optimized by having a robot do them? And what is the role of a human being in so many of these tasks? And so I started to think about how we can actually optimize our humanness in those tasks, mostly out of self-preservation and really thinking about how we're gonna maintain our viability in this field and really bringing the best of ourselves to cardiac intensive care. And so when you think about so much of what we do and this real big push towards guidelines and protocols, 
I often get the sense when I get handed down these protocols and these guidelines, and I really don't mean to offend people in QI because I do think processes are really important to make them efficient. I often think if the people handing them to me would rather have a really self-efficient robot do so many of these tasks because so many of them, the ones that really can be done to perfection and are reproducible, are simplified, would actually be done more consistently by a robot. And so then we started to think a, a lot about what is it that a human can add to this process, but also recognizing that humans um, have a lot of flaws. And, you know, recently I had done a talk at PCI says about cognitive biases. And one of the things I think we have to understand about being humans is that we have human needs that robots will never have. And I had organized a team science symposium at Lucille at Stanford a couple of years ago. And one of the Stanford volleyball coaches of women's volleyball. And I think he's like the winningest coach in the double in NCAA. And he and a player of his talked about how his players before practice actually check in. They actually have a check-in process about their emotions and their stress levels before they even start practice because they're acknowledging their humanness. They want to work within the confines of being human but they also want to optimize their state so that they can have a really good practice. So Lindsay and I kind of brainstormed about who we would want. And having worked with Donna and Mary, I pitched those ideas. And then Lindsay pitched Christine to talk about sleep. And she knows Andrea from her work at Cincinnati to talk about human factors. Thanks, Lillian. And I'm glad you uh, started out the conversation. I have to be honest, I had never really done a whole lot of research or thinking through uh, or, you know, in-depth understanding of human factors before working with Lillian on this session. I've always had an interest in uh, teams and team functioning, but this was a growth opportunity for me. And it was such a fun session to put together. I echo a lot of what Lillian said about the reason why we really wanted to pursue this session and working in the CICU obviously is kind of like that session on VUCA. It is uncertain and ambiguous uh, environment and you have a lot of processes in place, but they are being carried out by humans. And we bring with us who we are and we bring our backgrounds and we bring our experiences and we bring what happened to us yesterday. And we bring all those things into our daily work. And then we try to jive and mesh and function as a team. And obviously there are intricacies and complexities there. And so just thinking through the CICU environment and the teams and the way that human factors play into our day-to-day work. It was really enlightening for me, and I was very thankful to be part of this session. I think a, a really interesting way of thinking about the evolution of expertise in a cardiac intensive care unit is very similar to the evolution of expertise in any sort of task or skill or field or profession where the first thing you have to do is to learn muscle memory. You have to learn basic skills by doing them over and over and over and over again, repeatedly, consistently. 
and this kind of deli- deliberative practice that people talk about. And I think that is really important. And I often think about Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid about wax on, wax off. You have to really, really perfect those skills that can be eventually done by a robot, something that is consistent, predictable. But just like Lindsay said, then the field and your expertise has to evolve so that you can adapt to situations you've never seen before. And to really be that expert in the field, to really be able to adapt, you have to access your humanness. And that's what I fundamentally believe. And I really hope this session really highlighted that about humans instead of being down on us and saying, oh, we need sleep, we stress out and things like that. I I think it's to our benefit to figure out how to optimize ourselves because we really are, our humanness is what's best about being a provider in the cardiac intensive care unit. And I think what our patients need the most. That's uh, such a good perspective that I hadn't thought about before, about how we're going to have to learn to coexist with robots. It sounds like that's sort of what you're talking about, as opposed to like, what can we do better than robots or what can robots do better than us, but how to maximize the sort of efficiency of both workers in the future. Given that, uh, what stood out to you as some of the more compelling points that the speakers made during the panel? What spoke to you about maximizing our humanness? I had a lot of takeaway points from all of our speakers, to be honest. When Andrea Cooks was talking about cognitive and physical demand of working in the CICU, I think that's something we can all relate to. And it's nice to just see it presented for all of us to think through, like, what is the demand that working in that environment and functioning at our best, what is the demand that that takes on us and how do we maintain self-preservation? And then uh, sleep deprivation is certainly something that we do face in the CICU. Our patients don't all decide to have perfect hemodynamics between the hours of you know midnight and 6 a.m. And so there is a need for people to be on their A-game all through the night. And so when you think about allowing people to nap and sleep, there are there's lots of literature out there about the benefits of napping and the detriment of pathologic sleepiness and the toll that takes on people and why they end up like leaving their position in the CICU or trying to find something that will work more for their health long-term. But then, you know, from a hospital standpoint, it's a little difficult to make the argument that they're paying people to come sleep at night while they're in the unit. And so being aware of the impact of sleep deprivation and being able to work through some strategies that might preserve us all to continue to function on our A-game year after year so that we're not having only our newest team members on nights and then they, you know, burn out and move on and those type, just different strategies that we can think through. And then Donna's talk on time uh, and perception of time really sort of blew my mind. I had to go back and watch it a few times and think through like, okay, how did I 
how do I perceive time and, you know, how might I view it differently and how would, how do other people that I'm around view it and how can I be more understanding of that? So those were some of the takeaway points for me. What about you, Lillian? I really think what you just highlighted about sleep, I distinctly remember Christine Riley just admitting that she loves sleep. And I think statements like that in a professional meeting are so necessary, so needed, so refreshing, because I think there's long been a history of us in healthcare not wanting to admit how much we actually need sleep. And now there's all these apps like LeBron James on the Calm app talking about how he has a regimented sleep regimen and things like that. And so I just love the fact that Christine was just able to come out and talk about how much she loves sleep. I think that itself was really, really important. And I loved how she talked about the chronotypes and it made me wanting to find somebody who was more of a night owl to help us all with our call schedule and finding someone who's a nocturnist. Because I think just admitting that there are different people out there who have different needs for sleep or they have different calendar internal clocks is really important. And I think what you also said about Donna's talk, I think the first time I had heard about her work, it really, really changed the way I deal with people who I now recognize have different time perceptions than I do. And I think growing up, I have definitely I'm definitely a time urgent person, somebody for whom time, I have to be on time. I have to finish things on time and definitely clock time definitely rules my life. And I think meeting Donna and hearing about that made me recognize that. And then working with people for whom event time, the event, getting an echo thoroughly read and understood is more important than the fact that it's taking what I perceive to be a long time. And so I think when you're working with people within the hospital, everybody is in a different kind of time perception and just acknowledging that you may all be in different sync helps helped me a lot with working with some colleagues who I just felt like were taking too long with some event or task. So I think that that itself was also really helpful. And I think Andrea, knowing that she actually is employed by a major children's hospital that you guys at Cincinnati have actually invested in a human factors expert actually made me feel really hopeful that we're going to be taking this kind of work more seriously. And, and just like we invest in booms and we invest in pumps and we invest in nice beds, maybe there can actually be some investment in infrastructure for humans and how we can actually maximize our, our humanness. And then I think, of course, Mary's work on volatility and complex teams, I think is really important because I think sometimes people think that that beautifully run code that you see in PALS is the way it's always going to be done. But unfortunately, that's just not reality. There's a lot of complexity that happens there's a missing endotracheal tube, the light bulb on the laryngoscope doesn't work, 
you lose central access or you have no central access when this is occurring. And so that adaptation often looks messy because it's so complex. But I really believe that in that messiness is are multiple examples of how we are adapting to the realities of what that patient needs and that dynamic situation. That was beautifully said by the both of you. And I think it really highlights the importance of a session like the ones that you guys moderated and curated. And it is very refreshing to have a national conversation that really highlights the importance of, yes, we are human and let's look at that. Let's examine it. Let's explore it. And how can we leverage all of the things that we're good at and how can we um, optimize some of the barriers and really explore it with the same degree of quality and rigor that we do all of the other um, scientific discoveries that we, you know, traditionally focus on. And I think to be able to have a national conversation about it also gives it a lot of, um, you know, morale surrounding it, a lot of enthusiasm. And it, it does fill you with hope that, you know, it's, it's something that's important and that people can get behind I, th- I think it's an awesome first step. And just kind of as we move forward or for people that are listening that might be interested in those kinds of research arenas, do you, what do you anticipate as kind of the next step, you know, for some places like Cincinnati that are already leaders and they have invested um, personnel and you know, have made that kind of declaration that this is important to us. What about for other institutions or other places? How can they participate in advancing this specific field or topic forward? I think you're right, Sadie, that this is a excellent first step in just bringing it to the forefront of conversation. And once you know that there are resources like Andrea And there are people like Lillian that are, you know, thinking along these lines in their day-to-day work and in their um, research and in their improvement efforts. We learn from one another. We're all facing a lot of the same situations in our units uh, around the world. And so we don't have to, you know, remake the wheel at each individual place, but it's nice to know that we can reach out to one another and to hear what people like Mary Waller are working on and to know that that would be a resource that could help people think through things. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know that Andrea Cooks was working at Cincinnati Children's until we started doing some planning for our new tower construction and that that would help, you know, we started thinking through what are going to be the human factors in this new unit that we are building. And so she'd been working at Cincinnati Children's before that. And now I know her and have the opportunity to meet with her. I know that I could call upon her if, you know, we were trying to design a new process or if an event happened and it went poorly to help to evaluate what were the human factors that or physical factors that were in play um, during that event that we could improve upon. And Andrea was telling us that there is collaboration of human factors, experts in healthcare that they're forming. So they are learning from one another 
and reaching out to one another. And I think that that group and the utilization of that expertise is growing across centers, which is really exciting. Yeah, one society I know of is called the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society, which every year has a special healthcare edition. So they have their large conference in the fall, but their smaller healthcare focused one is actually in the spring. And anybody who's listening, who's more interested, I would say to get involved in a society like that. I think it's still pretty small, the number of people who have dedicated their careers to really learning about this. But I think, again, just the idea that you guys are dedicating a podcast to it is really important. I I think it just brings awareness that this is something that I think we all need to tackle. And at least people are talking about it now. And I think one thing that particularly occurs in the cardiac intensive care unit is this idea of perfect care and how if only that patient had had the perfect surgery or the perfect post-operative care, he or she would have done well. And I think that's not an idea, although we always want to deliver perfect care. Anybody who's actually worked in an intensive care unit knows the number of different factors that go into play when a patient is recovering in the intensive care unit. And to think that every single tiny piece is going to be perfect is unrealistic. And I think the more we talk about that, the better things will be. And the people who show up to work each show up wanting to bring the best care to that patient. But there are realities to our human performance, like sleep deprivation, that I think we as a society really have to face. And I think the more conversations we can have about that, the better off we'll be. I really like your last point, Lillian, because I think that we're all perfectionists by nature. That's sort of how we ended up in this field. And that perfectionism, I think, gives us the false sense that there is a perfect, that there is a like one specific way of doing things that we need to figure out. And so much of the ICU is living in the gray instead of figuring out what the black and white answer is. So one of the questions I specifically wanted to ask you then, Lillian, was about Dr. Waller's talk on VUCA environments. She discussed how high-performing teams strategize during what she described as cool periods and not just during moments of crisis. And since I know, Lillian, that your research focuses on simulation and resuscitation, have you seen simulation start to incorporate this idea of cool periods to allow teams to strategize when they're not under duress? Well, I would say it's not so much defined as a a cool period, but more before a patient arrives or a briefing period, or you actually have a moment in a situation where you feel like you should take what they call 10 for 10. So this idea that you almost want to pause time, stop time to take the 10 seconds to really reflect on what's going on with the patient. And even though you're in this kind of time urgent mode, the 10 seconds you take to pause and regroup will be worth it. I think that's that's really important. And I also think just understanding as a team that coordination among the members is something that you explicitly have to do. It's not something that is automatic, particularly in teams that are ad hoc or 
they just form for that moment in time. I think it's really important that teams find a way to regroup and at least take that time needed for that coordination. And because otherwise, I think the team kind of denigrates and you go too far down the pathway when it may be the wrong choice. I don't know if that was a specific cool moment that you were talking about, Neha, but. No, I, I mean, I think that that answers the question because I, I was fascinated by the idea that it's not just about learning how to put in the breathing tube or learning how to do PALS properly or figuring out what the diagnosis is in SIM, but it's also about creating team dynamics. Are there other ways that you use SIM to try to optimize team dynamics besides the sort of idea of 10 for 10 that you were talking about? So I would really credit simulation. Lindsay does a, a lot of simulation as well with really the basis of how I even got into any of this stuff. Um, I think simulation was really the foundation and Mary and I actually met because of simulation work. And it was because when I had taken the Boston course up from the Center of Medical Simulation, I was really interested in, in defining chaos. And so when I was taking that course, I asked Jenny Rudolph, who now directs that program, who's an expert in chaos? Because I want to quantify chaos in a resuscitation. And she pointed me to, to Mary. And so ever since that, I really now think of simulation less as simulation creating moments of practice, meaning you repeat a skill over and over to a, a lab of human behavior. And it's a place where you can really figure out how to do things from a behavior perspective. And I think understanding how teams behave, how they optimize themselves by studying simulated teams is one technique I think that is a little underutilized, but gaining a lot more traction. And so if you see how different teams behave either in simulated or in real scenarios, you can analyze that. And uh, Mary's done some great work using this theme pattern to do that. So you can look up her work to kind of quantify these different patterns that teams make. So there's actually a lot of literature in her field in organizational behavior on the use of simulation for that. Is there a way that you, either one of you would recommend sort of incorporating some of her findings or her um, philosophy in approaching SIM to kind of evolutionize or revamp the way we currently do SIM or even debrief about SIM? We just completed a study um, looking at reflective practice in simulation and we're in the midst of analyzing results. But part of the reason we did this study is because I think a lot of power of simulation is actually in the debriefing. And so it's really all about inducing regular reflective practice every single day that you work in the cardiac intensive care unit and teaching people on a team how to do that for themselves. So the more you do simulation and the facilitator takes you through debriefing, I talk a lot about understanding your own cognitive processes that occurred when you were participating in the simulation. And the more that 
you can then start to do it on your own without a debriefer or a facilitator walking you through it. The more you can reflect on what you accomplished that day or what you did that day in real work in the cardiac intensive care unit. And then I actually think that's probably the most powerful part of having participate in simulations um, for trainees and people who work on the front lines. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I feel like the facilitation is the key to uh, really understanding the scenario and then applying it to real life. And good facilitation involves not only helping the participants think through the medical management, but really starting to recognize the human behaviors that occurred and how the team functioned. And some of those practices that we instill in people during simulation, of course, the intention is that they go back and they start to implement them in real life scenarios and, and to notice when they're missing and to feel free to speak up. And um, so that all just takes practice through uh, the guidance of a facilitator to start to recognize and implement those things. And there are obviously many different facilitation styles, but um, one that I found interesting is when the facilitator stops the scenario after some period of time, whether it's after the team has gotten to a certain point or if it's specific period of time or if it if they're struggling, and they sort of facilitate throughout different points in time throughout the scenario and they reflect on what's happened up until that point. And then they allow the team to sort of rewind and implement what they just learned in the same exact scenario and then move forward a little farther in time. And then, you know, again, if they get stuck or if they hit a certain time point, you stop and you facilitate, you know, these behaviors are happening and then rewind. Now you have a chance to apply. And so you start to see the improvement of the team functioning with the real-time application. And I found that really helpful. I was just going to add one thing that Mary Waller actually taught me a long time ago. As I was a participant in simulation, she told me that simulations actually you should view it and your participants should really view it as a personality test. So people love taking personality tests because they love to learn more about themselves. They want to know how to improve themselves and what they're really about and who they fundamentally are. And she really talks about how when you participate through a simulation, it's so easy to be preoccupied with how you are being perceived. But that's the real tragedy of simulation when a participant is actually more concerned about how they're perceived than what they're going to learn. So one of the things I always tell people when I do a simulation is if you find yourself doing that, you're doing yourself a disservice. Instead, you should really be thinking about it as you're going through a personality test. You are going to be faced with these situations. And then in the debrief, you're going to reflect on how you confronted that situation. And there's so many aspects to that. And you're going to learn more about how you handle stress. How do you intubate under duress? 
How do you react to that noise? How do you react to a distractor? How do you react to a rude person? And you're going to learn more about your performance in those kinds of situations in the hopes that next time you're going to be a better version of you. And I think that helps participants focus inward instead of outward, which I think simulation can sometimes just be a very intimidating thing where nobody wants to volunteer because they just feel like everyone is judging them. And I really think the, the facilitator's job is to make it all about the individual people, participants in the sim. I think that's a really powerful point. And I think it almost comes full circle to the uh, kind of beginning of the talk is that, you know, kind of the history of the culture of medicine is this very sometimes hierarchical, judgmental uh, criticism kind of way. And that really the point of all of this is in understanding our humanness and how we behave is for introspection and to grow. And, and part of the conversation or environment that we want to foster is one of transparency and communication and kind of bringing it back full circle, not just on the individual level, but really how we interact with each other and how we can create a culture sort of larger than us that fosters exactly what we're trying to get at. Um, and I thought you said something earlier that was really interesting in that the power if I understood you correctly, sort of the power in the simulation and evaluating the behavior dynamics is in the introspection and that that might even be a tool, not just for SIM or VUCA kind of hot period moments, but really in our daily practice and how can we be better tomorrow than we were today? How can we kind of quickly or feasibly take that into like a a practical way, you know, is it really just like at the end of the day, touching it, touching base with a couple of nurses or on your car ride home, kind of evaluating the behaviors or how would you suggest that we could make that into sort of a daily practice? One thing I tell my trainees that are my mentees is to buy a journal And to every day that you are in a clinical arena that you're just trying to learn from is to write down one to two things. And I I also tell this to new nurses too, when I do orientation sims with some of them to write down, because I think the cardiac intensive care unit is this very overwhelming place, particularly for a novice. And it's hard to go through a day and not feel just overwhelmed by the amount of data that is occurring in the and coming at you in the unit. And you've probably done a thousand tasks that day, but I think it is really important every day to reflect on one or two things that you learned or you had wished you had done better or that you had, you felt like you had actually done really well. And after you do that, you can do that automatically on your drive home. Um, And to just think about and try to be precise about behaviors that you did or tasks that you did or the way you communicated with a family or the way you thought through a problem. And to be mindful of that, I think, could be really helpful. I love the idea of a journal. I I do sort of a similar thing with my mentees um, and those on my team, just 
in we debrief situations or, you know, when I'm meeting with them regularly, I ask them, uh, you know, because a lot of times it's, oh, I did this and I made this mistake and I'm, you know, we're working through an issue. But I try to, at the same time, make sure that they can verbalize either one to two things that they learned from it, or at the same time, you know, one or two things that they did well, despite some struggle that they're in. I think we have to have the ability to self-reflect and give ourselves some grace and know that we, uh, I think like Lillian said earlier, we all come to work to take the absolute best care of patients and to be able to see our successes, even in the midst of times when things didn't go perfectly. The other thing I would say, and it's hard, it's very hard, and I'd say most of us are not great at it, but encouraging direct, real-time, one-on-one communication with our teammates. It's so often I will find that I might feel frustrated about someone else's behavior or their reaction or what they did in a certain moment. And I have a couple of choices. I can, you know, walk back to the office and I can be annoyed or I can take the time to have a real-time conversation and say something like, help me understand what you were thinking in this situation or, you know, the way I perceived what just happened was X, Y, or Z. And I'd like to understand, you know, how it felt from your perspective. And so often it just brings clarity that we weren't on the same page, but we were coming at it from different perspectives and there's common ground to be had. Um, And so I really try to encourage that for myself and for my team. I really love that, Lindsay. I think that is so important. And again, something that people really don't talk about or exercise because it's not some grand gesture or some grand marketing scheme. It's the little things, the little conversations. And I think people today really have to choose between do I text them? Do I say nothing at all? Do I send an email or do I pick up the phone? And I have been more deliberate and about when to pick up the phone because sometimes when texting is going back and forth or email, sometimes you just need to have a conversation on the phone or in person as COVID allows and masking allows because it makes such a difference to have those conversations. And I think we're really talking about psychological safety here. And one thing I always like to point out about psychological safety, and this is Amy Edmondson's work, is that psychological safety is not about being nice. It's not an anti-bullying campaign. It's really about accountability in a place where people feel safe enough to give real feedback. And that's really how we improve care is by getting that real-time feedback. But it has to be real. You can't just be nice for the sake of being nice or to promote a culture of safety. The safest units are the ones where people really feel free to hold each other accountable because we know that each of us can be better than just what happened. And it's the belief that our unit, our team, 
is better than the way we performed. And if you give that feedback with that belief that that person can actually be better, then I think the person can understand that you're giving it because you believe in them, not purely because you're criticizing them. And I think it goes wrong when the person giving the feedback doesn't fundamentally believe the person can be better. And then you run into problems of honesty and creating a real culture of psychological safety. I think that's such a great point. I had never had thought about that. And I think you're right. Probably some a lot of times we get maybe confused about what what is safety and that we think we have to be nice to to be honest or transparent when I think you're really getting to the meat of it, which is doing it in such a way that's constructive. And I mean, when I hear you say, you know, you if you believe in someone, to me, that's like lifting up your team, right? Like when your teammate wins, you win, we all win. And kind of framing it in such a way that the person can hopefully be open to the feedback and receive it, I think is makes a lot of sense and probably can get you farther in the conversation. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on feedback and communication in the CICU. I'd I'd love one of you ladies to create a panel at at Pixis next year to sort of go through some of these ideas and talk about how we communicate. I want to thank you, Lillian and Lindsay, for speaking with us today about humanness in the CICU. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. And to all our listeners, thank you for listening to the Pixis podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please visit our website, pixis.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and so much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.